क्योंकि तुम ही हो अब तुम ही हो जिंदगी अब तुम ही हो छन भी मेरे दर्द भी मेरी आश की अब तुम ही हो वेल ऑन दैट इंडियन नोट वेलकम टू दर्टींथ एपिसोड of the divine intervention podcasts my name is divine i am a fourth year medical student um some friends of mine uh i have an appreciation for indian music and i've been trying to learn one song so uh, i was discussing with some friends of mine yesterday about uh, trying to learn this specific song uh that was just a teaser uh release for my new album I'm just kidding uh but uh, hopefully i can learn that song at some point in the future okay So today we're going to be talking about metabolism. I'm going to break this up in parts. Um uh, metabolism is something that's probably a little too big to discuss in one podcast. So I'll discuss it over a series of podcasts and by the end uh hopefully you should have a very good review going into step 1. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Um so the big things I'm going to say I'm going to talk about today uh, I'll talk about nucleotide synthesis and I will also talk about um some problems with uh, proteins and drawing a lot of like pharmacology and other biochemistry and pathology and all that crap so let's go ahead and start so uh summary of nucleotide synthesis uh remember that uh, uh nucleotides right include uh, dna and rna right so to make dna and rna you do in fact need nucleotides and nucleotides basically contain a sugar a nitrogen base and a phosphate group okay a sugar nitrogen base and a phosphate group so that nucleotide the precursor to a nucleotide is a nucleoside a nucleoside is just the sugar and the nitrogen base you haven't added a phosphate group just yet okay but those nucleosides need to come from a nitrogen base okay and those nitrogen bases can be one of two kinds it can be a purine or it can be a pyrimidine okay so you start with the nitrogen base if you add a sugar you form a nucleoside if you form a phosphate you form a nucleotide okay and those nitrogen bases like i said they can be one of two kinds they can be a two ringed uh nitrogen base uh, they are called the purine um nitrogen bases those include adenine and guanine okay and the way you differentiate between adenine and guanine is adenine has an amino group at a like the top most position like the 12 o'clock position guanine has a ketone right so it has like a carbonyl group carbon double bonded to an oxygen the pyrimidine nitrogen bases they're one base they're one ring uh nitrogen bases okay and there's three kinds there is cytosine there's uracil and there's thymine uh there's a classic mnemonic called the pi that can help you remember those three and one nice thing about them that i think is actually kind of helpful is that order also shows you how those nucleus uh nitrogen bases are made right so cytosine if you deaminate cytosine with cytosine deaminase you make uracil you see a pharmacology time with that in a bit and if you methylate uracil you actually form thymine okay so you'll see a pharmacology thing with the first step uh, uh shortly and this sugar that joins up with a nitrogen base to form a nucleoside where does this sugar come from the thing is the sugar actually comes from the hexose monophosphate shunt which is also known as the pentose phosphate pathway so that pathway makes ribose 5 phosphates that ribose 5 phosphate uh can uh join up with uh 
uh, a pyrophosphate group from ATP, right? So two phosphates to make something called phosphoribosyl pyrophosphate. And the enzyme that makes that happen is PRPP synthetase, okay? So that's a summary of nucleotide synthesis. So now we know how to actually synthesize uh, nucleotides. Let's then go into a little bit more detail. Uh, but first, let's talk about pyrimidines. As you can see on the second slide, I say that pyrimidines, uh, to make them, you make the nitrogen base first, and then you add the sugar. But for the purines, you make the sugar first, and then you add the nitrogenous base. So let's talk about pyrimidines. Let's make the nitrogen base first, and then we add the sugar. So uh, to make the base first, uh, all of this actually happens in the cytosol or nucleotide synthesis in general happens in the cytosol. So the first thing that happens is that you condense glutamine and C, uh, carbon dioxide with some other stuff. Okay. And you make something called carbamoyl phosphate. And the enzyme that makes this happen is CPS2, carbamoyl phosphate synthetase 2. Okay. And again, this is a cytosolic enzyme. Uh, if there's a CPS2, you should probably know that there's a CPS1. Okay. Remember the one in CPS1 as being like an I to help you remember that CPS1 works in the mitochondria. Okay. Works in the mitochondria of the urea cycle. We'll talk about that in a later slide. Okay, so you make carbamol phosphate, and then that carbamol phosphate is then made into erotic acid by some magic that we don't are not really interested in for the purposes of board exams. And then that erotic acid is the nitrogen base. So we've accomplished our first objective. Okay, now we want to make a nucleo a nucleotide. Okay, so we are adding a sugar and we are adding uh, phosphate. Right, and that's done by an enzyme known as UMP synthase. UMP synthase takes that phosphoribosyl pyrophosphate I talked about on the previous slide, okay, and helps us make uridine monophosphate. I'll talk about uh, pathology associated with that in a bit. And then that UMP is made into UDP. Don't care much about that, but that UDP is a ribonucleotide, okay? UDP is a ribonucleotide. The thing is, we have RNA and DNA. If you want to go down the DNA pathway, you need to convert your ribonucleotides to a deoxyribonucleotide. Ribonucleotides in general have hydroxy groups at the two prime and the three prime uh, carbons of the sugar structure, okay? But a deoxyribonucleotide does not have that two prime hydroxy group. It only has that three prime hydroxy group that it uses to form those phosphodiester bonds with the five prime phosphate. So to remove that two prime hydroxy group, we need an enzyme known as ribonucleotide reductase. I'll talk about some pathologies related to that. So that UMP, uh, DUDP, you can clip off a phosphate, make DUMP, and then that DUMP can then be converted to DTMP. And if you remember, I said that the difference between uracil and thymine is a methyl group, okay? So this reaction clearly needs a methyl donor, okay? And one high-yield methyl donor that exists in the body is uh, the methylated form of tetrahydrofolate. The methylated form of tetrahydrofolate can give a methyl group to DUMP, and then we make uh, deoxythymidine monophosphate from that. And then that cycle needs to keep going, and I'll talk about some pathologies relating to that uh, shortly. So, what are those pathologies? Uh, if you go to the very top of the slide, um, I, top right, I guess, uh, I talk about how having a UMP synthase deficiency is associated with aurotic aciduria. The thing is, uh, if you have a deficiency of the enzyme that metabolizes aurotic acid, Obviously, your levels of erotic acid in the serum will go up. You'll see how this is related to another disorder that I'll talk about in a later slide. 
okay? Now, ribonucleoside reductase is, uh, helps you go from RNA land to DNA land. The thing is you can actually inhibit that enzyme uh, with an anti-cancer drug known as hydroxyurea. Uh, hydroxyurea, yes, it's an anti-cancer drug, and it is, in fact, used for some hematologic malignancies. Uh, but the thing is, um, hydroxyurea is primarily used in the real world for the treatment of sickle cell disease, okay? Because by some unknown mechanism, it increases the synthesis of hemoglobin F, which is alpha-2 gamma-2. Now, if you then jump down to thymidylate synthase, thymidylate synthase, which helps us go from DUMP to DTMP, that enzyme... Um, can be inhibited by a drug known as 5-fluorouracil, okay, 5-fluorouracil. So 5-fluorouracil is an anti-cancer drug. The thing is, you can, if you look further upstream, there is an arrow going from 5-FC to 5-FU. The 5-FC actually stands for 5-flucytosine. Uh, if you remember, this is an antifungal that is used to treat uh, cryptococcal uh, neoformans and meningitis in eight patients. Okay, the way 5-flucytosine actually works is that it is deaminated by cytosine deaminase. So remember, remember that principle I talked about on the preceding slide. Uh, cytosine deaminase converts the 5-flucytosine to 5-fluorouracil. That 5-fluorouracil inhibits thymidylate synthase. You make less thymidine uh, monophosphate, and then you basically uh, uh, treat the cryptococcal uh, meningitis. Okay, so that's a very nice uh, tie-in there. Now, I also said that for thymidylate synthase to work, okay, you need a methyl, a methyl group, okay, coming from methylene tetrahydrofolate. So when methylene tetrahydrofolate gives that methyl group to thymidylate synthase to make DTMP, okay, uh, dihydrofolate uh, is made as a byproduct of that reaction. If you want to keep thymidylate synthase doing its job, okay, that dihydrofolate has to be reconverted back to tetrahydrofolate by an enzyme known as dihydrofolate reductase, okay? This enzyme is inhibited by methotrexate, uh, trimethoprim, and uh, pyrimethamine. Uh, methotrexate, remember, it causes pulmonary fibrosis as a side effect, and it can also cause a liver dysfunction. And remember that methotrexate can be used to treat a hydatidiform moles, right? So like molar pregnancies. Remember the snowstorm appearance on an on a ultrasound of the pelvis. Uh, trimethoprim, uh, it's usually combined with uh, SMX, right? So trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole to treat the pneumocystis gerovetsi pneumonia. Uh, you can also use it to prophylax against the PCP when the CD4 count drops below 200. And remember that trimethoprim uh, TMP-SMX bactrim, right, can also be used to treat UTIs. It can also be used to treat the nocardia. Okay, remember as a review from a previous podcast, remember that nocardia is an aerobic organism. It's a gram-positive branching filamentous rod, and it's also weakly acid fast, right? So it stays positive with a zeonielsen stain. And then pyrimethamine uh, combined with sulfadiazine can actually be used to treat the toxoplasmosis, right? So classically, if you think about an AIDS patient that has ring-enhancing lesions on an MR, on a MR uh, magnetic resonance imaging, uh, you think about uh, toxoplasmosis. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say about this, uh, about this slide. So let's jump on to the next one. So an interesting comparison of two cycles, right? So these two cycles, they are not just interest. I mean, intellectually, it's stimulating to compare these two cycles, but these two cycles are actually like USMLE relevant, okay? So these two cycles include the urea cycle <coughs> and the synthesis of pyrimidines. I just said that to make pyrimidines, you do that in the cytosol. But the thing is, the urea cycle actually operates in two spots in the body, I mean, in a cell, okay? The first two steps actually work in the mitochondria, and then the final steps work in the cytosol, 
Okay, you may ask yourself, divine, this is too low yield to know. Well, think again. It's actually high yield to know these are double localization details for step one. So, in the urea cycle, stuff, including ammonia, is acted on by carbamoyl phosphate synthesis one to make carbamoyl phosphate. Okay, that's the first step of that cycle. And then that carbamoyl phosphate can be converted to citrulline by an enzyme known as ornithine transcarbamylase. Okay, so ornithine transcarbamylase converts uh, carbamoyl phosphate to citrulline. Okay, and that citrulline can then go into the cytosol to complete the remaining steps of the urea cycle, right? So it condenses with aspartate and all that fun stuff. Now, um, so... That is the urea cycle, okay? But the thing is, uh, if you contrast that with pyrimidine synthesis, pyrimidine synthesis, I said that instead of using CPS1, you actually use CPS2, okay? CPS2, carbamyl phosphate synthesis 2, works in the cytosol, okay? It converts glutamine and CO2 with some other stuff to carbamyl phosphate, and then that carbamyl phosphate by some magic becomes erotic acid, and then that erotic acid, okay, is converted to uridine monophosphate by an enzyme known as uridine monophosphate synthase or ump synthase okay so if you notice i put two red star uh, x's in those two pathways right so first we've contrasted those pathways by location right so like mitochondria for the first two steps of the urea cycle cytosol for all the steps of pyrimidine synthesis but the thing is you can have two enzyme deficiencies in both pathways that can create an erotic acidemia if you may Okay, that erotic acidemia, right? It's like similar phenotype, but they're different. Um, there are some extra findings that can tell you that, oh, it's this enzyme deficiency that's in operation versus this other enzyme deficiency, right? So if you have an OTC deficiency and anything transcarbamylase deficiency, uh, you will have a very big buildup of carbamyl phosphate, okay? And if you're thinking with regards to Loshatli's principle from college chemistry, as carbamyl phosphate builds up, okay, it can spill into the cytosol, okay? It can spill into the cytosol, that's one feat. Another thing that can happen is, as carbamyl phosphate builds up, the upstream contributor to the synthesis of carbamyl phosphate in the mitochondria also builds up, okay? So ammonia in this case. So you can get a hyperammonemia with OTC deficiency. But this carbamyl phosphate that spills in from the mitochondria into the cytosol, it can actually just basically um, join into the pyrimidine synthesis game, okay? That carbamyl phosphate, it can be converted to erotic acid, and you can get an erotic acid acidemia under those uh, circumstances, okay? Now, if we go to the pyrimidine synthesis side of things, okay? If we have a UMP synthase deficiency, we have a disease known as erotic aciduria. Okay, so if you have a deficiency of UMP synthase, erotic acid builds up. Okay, but because this is part of the pyrimidine synthesis pathway and not the urea cycle, okay, you don't have any elevations in your ammonia. So that is how you tell uh, the urea cycle deficit, anything transcarbamylase deficiency apart from the pyrimidine synthesis deficit. Okay, UMP synthase deficiency. And then in the middle, I put as an aside, if they wanted to make this a more nifty step one question, they could talk about, oh, a person has hyperammonemia, sorry, they have like the encephalopathy you get with uh, too much ammonia dancing around in your blood. Uh, but these people have no erotic aciduria. Okay, you may be like, hmm, how did that happen, right? So that's one very nice way they can test your knowledge of the urea cycle, 
okay if you have a cps1 deficiency your ammonia will build up but because carbon monophosphate is downstream of that you have decreased levels or normal levels of carbon monophosphate okay so that's how you can com uh, compare these uh, three enzyme deficiencies in fact i try to do that on the next slide if you have a cps deficiency it's a urocycle problem so your ammonia levels are up but your carbon monophosphate and aurotic acid levels are down okay if you have another urocycle deficiency that's a little more downstream okay anything transcarbamylase deficiency your ammonia levels go up okay because again it's a urocycle problem your carbamyl phosphate levels also go up because only thing transcarbamylase converts carbamyl phosphate to citrulline okay and then your uric acid levels also go up because that carbamyl phosphate spills into the circulation uh, i mean spills into the cytosol and that's uh uh joins in pyrimidine synthesis so you make more uric acid okay but contrast that with the pyrimidine synthesis uh, deficit like a ump synthase deficiency where your levels of ammonia are normal okay because it's not a urea cycle problem but your carbamol phosphate and your uric acid levels are elevated because again these two things come upstream of ump synthase and really the way you treat ump synthase deficiency is just to give back what is deficient you give back uridine in the diet and you can largely relieve the sequelae of ump synthase deficiency but if you have a cps1 or otc deficiency uh, it's really bad because that ammonia can build up in the brain and cause a lot of problems for the infant okay so those kids usually don't live uh, super long unfortunately so next slide right so we've talked about uh, pyrimidines now let's talk about purines okay so let's talk about how you make purines and let's talk about how you break purines okay so to make purines right we said that you start with the sugar first and then you add the nitrogenous base okay so we make the sugar first i've talked about how the sugar is made with uh, prpp synthetase in a previous slide okay so you make uh, prpp and then you make something known as 5-phosphoribosylamine with an enzyme known as PRPP amidotransferase. The reason I'm mentioning PRPP amidotransferase is that it's actually the rate-limiting enzyme of purine synthesis. So you definitely want to know that for, for step one. So you make 5-phosphoribosylamine uh, and then you have some magic happen and then you make inosine monophosphate. Okay. Now the inosine monophosphate can either be converted to uh, adenosine monophosphate or guanosine monophosphate and the enzyme that helps you go from inosine monophosphate to adenosine monophosphate is inosine monophosphate dehydrogenase now why do i mention this enzyme i mentioned this enzyme because it's inhibited by certain drugs okay so one drug that inhibits this enzyme is mycophenolic morphetil okay uh it's an immunosuppressant it's used after transplants okay uh ribavirin which is used to treat uh, rsv and also like hep c under certain uh, circumstances also works by inhibiting inosine monophosphate dehydrogenase and the rate limiting enzyme prpp amidotransferase if you notice i put like five red things by prpp amidotransferase um i put uh, amp gmp imp to help you remember the regulation of prpp amidotransferase those products of that enzyme go back and feedback inhibit uh feedback inhibit the enzyme and then allopurinol and 6-methylpurine um, actually go back and also inhibit prpp amidotransferase so you may be like hmm divine how is that relevant to our discussion you'll see why when we're done talking about uh, purine breakdown i'll talk about some uh, integration with that so let's break down our purines right so again remember nucleotide nucleoside 
nitrogen base okay so the nucleotide AMPG AMP you pull out a phosphate you make the nucleoside you pull out the sugar you make the nitrogenous base okay the nitrogenous basis uh, uh, hypoxanthine or guanine okay and then those nitrogenous bases they can be converted by xanthine oxidase okay in two sequential steps to uric acid to uric acid okay and then that uric acid is actually uh poorly soluble right so if you have too much uric acid in your blood you could get gout or you could get uh, nephrolithiasis from uric acid stones remember uric acid stones are radiolucent so you don't see them on an x-ray but you can see them on a ct scan okay uh and then in birds in birds the uric acid could actually be converted by an enzyme known as uricase to allantoin allantoin is water soluble okay it's much more soluble than uric acid okay so now that we understand this we can then begin to bring in some integration and then i'll go back to that prpp amidotransferase story that i was fleshing out a, a few minutes ago so one thing we could do is if a person has gout right or they have tumor lysis syndrome where they have some kind of hematologic malignancy and uh uh, the person's uh, uh, white cells or whatever are dying and they are producing, they are dumping a lot of purines into the serum and making a lot of uh, uric acid that's clogging up the kidneys and uh, also causing gout. You could try to solubilize that uric acid by giving a pharmacological agent that replicates the activity of uricase, okay? That's where drugs like piglotikase and rasburicase come in, okay? Piglotikase and rasburicase, they are uricase analogs that help you dissolve uric acid and nicely by converting it to something that's a little more water soluble now another thing you could do to prevent tumor lysis syndrome right is to say okay you know what let me go ahead and inhibit the enzyme that breaks that helps us make uric acid in the first place xanthine oxidase right so that's how drugs like allopurinol and feboxostat work okay they inhibit uh, xanthine oxidase so you don't make uric acid now the thing is Xanthine oxidase, uh, in addition to make, helping us make uric acid, it actually has another high-yield USMLE role, okay? One thing it does is that it breaks down uh, 6-mecaptopurine to inactive metabolites, okay? So, if you think about it, if you give a xanthine oxidase inhibitor, like allopurinol of a boxostat, you decrease the breakdown of 6-mecaptopurine, and that can do one of two things. One is that... Uh, it could do a bad thing to you, right? It could increase the toxicity of 6-mecaptopurine. Alternatively, if you're a wise uh, pharmacologist or physician, you can actually give allopurinol with, uh, as part of the drug cocktail for a person that's being treated with chemotherapy that includes 6-mecaptopurine to decrease the dose of 6-mecaptopurine that you have to administer, okay? So that's a very nice uh, tie-in there. Now, the thing is... Um, if you want to um, take this nitrogenous base that you got from breaking down a purine and like remaking, if you wanted to say, okay, you know what, uh, why don't I conserve my purines instead of wasting them in the urine? Why don't I convert, uh, conserve them by converting the nitrogen base back to a nucleotide? Uh, you do that in a pathway known as the purine uh, salvage pathway. Okay, and the one big enzyme you need to know for that pathway is HGPRT. Okay, uh, HGPRT stands for hypoxanthine guanine phosphoribosotransferase. Okay, it's the enzyme that takes hypoxanthine and guanine and adds a sugar 
and the phosphate back right so phosphoriboso okay it transfers a sugar and a phosphate back to hypoxanthin and guanine and remakes the nucleotide okay so why is it important to know this enzyme it's important for certain reasons one is that you have um uh one is that uh, it's the enzyme that helps us in the purine salvage pathway the other thing is this is the enzyme that's deficient in lesch nyhan syndrome okay lesch nyhan syndrome uh it was actually discovered at my uh, at my med school by a med student go figure and uh some physician uh, you can look that up uh, in your free time so uh lesch nyhan syndrome it's a hgprt deficiency and the thing is if you think about it if hgprt is deficient you've basically killed the pathway that helps us deal with a uh, nitrogen basis okay because these nitrogen bases we can deal with them in one of two ways at least on this slide you can deal with them uh with hgprt which is what happens more than 85 percent of the time or you can deal with them with xanthine oxidase, okay? So if the 85 percentile plus pathway is gone, then this other pathway then becomes the 100% pathway, okay? So make a ton of uric acid. So gout is a classic finding in Lesch-Nyhan syndrome, although um, you also tend to get uh, self-mutilation and all that stuff in uh, Lesch-Nyhan uh, syndrome. So one treatment for Lesch-Nyhan syndrome is that uh, you can give a xanthine oxidase inhibitor to sort of prevent the gouty sequelae that you get with the disease. Although the self-mutilation and the neurological problems, those are unfortunately not uh, very treatable. Now, uh, the thing is, if you notice, another red I put by HGPRT is azathioprine. So the thing is, azathioprine is an anti-cancer drug that is a precursor to another drug known as 6-mecapthopurine. Okay, so the way azathioprine works is that it's converted to a purine analog, okay, by the action of HGPRT. HGPRT helps us activate azathioprine, helps us convert it to 6-mecapthopurine, okay? 6-mecapthopurine has purine in the name. That should help you remember that it's a purine analog, okay? So 6-mecapthopurine goes and inhibits uh, PRPP amidotransferase, okay? And by inhibiting PRPP amidotransferase, you basically shut down the synthesis of purines. It also so happens that 6-mecapthopurine can also inhibit HGPRT, Okay, so overall, you decrease purine synthesis, and that's how isothioprine slash 6MP work as anti-cancer agents. So that's what I'm going to say on this slide. Okay, and uh, let me just talk about one last uh, offshoot of uh, the purine salvage pathway, right? So again, you start with a nucleotide, you break it down to a nucleoside, and then that nucleoside is broken down to a nitrogenous base, okay? So AMP is a nucleotide, it's broken down to adenosine, okay? That's a nucleoside. And then you pull off the sugar with, uh, actually, you don't, uh, uh, you actually don't uh, pull off a sugar just yet. You deaminate the adenosine to make another nucleoside known as inosine. And the enzyme that makes that happen is adenosine deaminase. Okay, and then you make inosine. Inosine, you then pull off the sugar. Okay, and then you're left with a nitrogenous base, hypoxanthine. Okay, so the thing is, if you notice, I put ADA, adenosine deaminase, between adenosine and inosine. Okay, the thing is, if you have a deficiency of adenosine deaminase, uh, it's an autosomal recessive disease, you have a buildup of adenosine. 
okay? And again, if you're working backwards with the Lushatli principle, as your adenosine levels go up, your AMP levels go up. If your AMP levels go up, your deoxy-ATP levels go up, okay? And that, your higher levels of ATP, that ATP can combine with uh, methionine, okay, to make SAM, right? Uh, we'll talk about SAM in a different podcast. Uh, as you'll come to know, SAM is a very good methyl carrier in the body. It works like in the adrenal medulla, for example, to help you convert uh, norepinephrine to epinephrine. But that's a different story for another podcast. So SAM, um, if you pull off a methyl group from SAM, you can actually make something called S-adenosyl homocysteine. Okay, S adenosyl homocysteine. The thing is, S adenosyl homocysteine is actually toxic to B and T lymphoblasts. Okay, so if you kill your B and T lymphoblasts, you do not make B or T cells. So you get something called a severe combined immunodeficiency. Okay, so that's the pathophysiology behind adenosine deaminase deficiency being one cause of autosomal recessive skid. Now, another thing that could also happen is uh, that AMP that's building up, right? Because it's not been, uh, because of a buildup of adenosine, that AMP that builds up, okay? Remember, uh, if you remember your negative feedback, that inhibits PRPP amidotransferase, which, as we said, is the rate limiting enzyme of purine synthesis, okay? So you also have decreased purine synthesis under those conditions. That's why you can get into a lot of trouble with adenosine deaminase deficiency. So, next slide, right? So, protein metabolism. Uh, protein metabolism, basically, uh, for the rest of this podcast, I'm just going to talk about how you deal with uh, proteins, okay? So let's assume you uh, you eat some protein-containing dish, like meat or chicken or turkey, whatever, okay? So you guzzle it down your throat, and uh, as it goes down your esophagus, it gets to the stomach, okay? Uh, the stomach, remember, there's parietal cells that make um, um, acid, okay through a uh, hydrogen pot, uh, potassium antiporter okay yeah uh, it is an antiporter it's an atpase right so you make a ton of acid that acid denatures the protein okay and then that protein uh pepsin in the stomach begins to digest the pr uh, protein okay remember pepsin is the active form of pepsinogen pepsinogen actually comes from chief cells okay chief cells another cell type you find in the stomach uh to actually go from pepsinogen to pepsin you actually need the acidity of the stomach to make that happen as well so that's a nice uh, gi tie in there okay now that protein then makes its way to the uh to the small intestine okay and the pancreas releases certain enzymes like trypsin chemotrypsin uh carboxypeptidase whatever they also help with digesting the protein although remember that enterokinase is what kickstarts this process right so enterokinase converts trypsinogen to trypsin and then trypsin can then go and break down the zymogen forms of uh chymotrypsin and carboxypeptidase to the more active forms okay so you break down those uh proteins to amino acids okay amino acids are like uh, the monomers that build up proteins but another thing that would happen is uh, instead of breaking the protein down completely to an amino acid you can break it, break it down to like a dipeptide or a tripeptide okay and then the dipeptide or tripeptide or monopeptide which is an amino acid they can all go uh, they can be pumped into an enterocyte in the small intestine by uh, sodium glucose linked transporter okay sorry not sodium glucose sodium amino acid linked transporter 
okay so remember sodium is primarily an extracellular ion because of the activity of the sodium potassium atp pump so as that sodium goes down its gradient into the enterocyte you have the active transport i guess not pumping active transport of amino acids okay or dipeptides or tripeptides and if you notice in the slide i say that o versus glucose i just want to remind you that you cannot uh, transport disaccharides or trisaccharides across an enterocyte membrane with uh, sodium linked transportation okay contrast that with your amino acids where oh you could take like a diamino acid okay a dipeptide or a tripeptide and bring it uh, bring it into the enterocyte with a sodium linked uh, transporter okay now um, if you have a, a problem uh, some kind of uh, mutation in those transporters for amino acids you can have two high yield diseases for step one okay you can have something known as heart knob disease or you can have something known as a cystinuria okay and the thing is these transporters they do not just work in the in the small intestine they actually also work in the proximal convoluted tubule okay they actually work in the kidney as well in fact i'll just tell you this as a general principle most transporters you'll find in the small intestine are also found in the proximal tubule why does that make any sense the thing is both parts of the body okay have involved in reabsorption right so if they are both involved in reabsorption it should make sense that they have similar transporters if you even wanted a very nice uh um uh tying here if you remember like the sodium glucose linked transporter right so we have sglt transporters in the kidney like sgl uh like sglt2 but in the enterocyte in the small intestine we actually have sglt1 right so remember your sglt2 inhibitors like canagliflozin and uh, dapagliflozin that uh basically help you pee out uh, sugar in your urine uh, so these are sodium amino acid linked transporters. Do you find them in the in the GI tract, in the small intestine, and also in the proximal tubule? Um, in fact, if you also think about both parts of the body being involved in reabsorption, you can see why there's microvilli in the small intestine, and there's also microvilli in the proximal convoluted tubule. Okay, so just some nice uh, tines uh, between those two uh, parts of the body. So. Heart knob disease uh, is basically a problem with uh, a neutral amino acid a transporter, okay? And again, this transporter is found in the small intestine and the kidneys, right? So if you have a mutation in this transporter, you do not reabsorb. You do not reabsorb a neutral amino acids, either in the gut or in the, in the urinary tract. And if you have that, uh, you won't reabsorb tryptophan. Tryptophan is a high-yield neutral amino acid. The thing is, tryptophan uh, can be used to make things like serotonin, right? Serotonin is 5-HT, 5-hydroxy tryptophan. But tryptophan can also be converted to niacin, okay? So if you have a tryptophan deficiency, you can also get a niacin deficiency, okay, with heart knob disease. A niacin deficiency, remember the four Ds, okay? So like dermatitis, uh, dementia, diarrhea, okay, and death. Death is the fourth uh, D. Uh, guess that's not very ideal okay so uh, you can get uh, uh, pellagra presentation if you have a heart knob disease now cystinuria uh, uh, is a mutation in another amino acid transporter but this transporter uh, it's classically known as the cola transporter because it transports cysteine ornithine lysine and arginine okay which are all basic 
amino acids okay so the thing is again if you have a mutation in this transporter and like as like i said that this transporter operates in the gi tract and in the urinary tract uh cysteine can begin to show up in your urine okay and the thing is the cysteine can pair up with a buddy another cysteine buddy and you make a cysteine and that cysteine can form kidney stones okay because it's not very soluble in the urine okay so you can form kidney stones remember those cysteine stones are like 16 stones right so they're shaped like hexagons like benzene rings um so that can cause a nephrolithiasis okay so that can be a presentation of cystinuria okay and the thing is those cysteine stones you can actually solubilize them under basic conditions okay so you can actually give acetazolamide as treatment for cystinuria it helps you solubilize the cysteine stones now the thing is we like protein right but the thing is protein actually does some bad things to the body okay i mean it's not necessarily bad if you have a good organ to deal with it in this case the liver and your kidneys to a limited extent okay so the thing is to deal with a protein problem we we need um we also need to deal with the ammonia that we get from proteins okay so to deal with that ammonia we have something known as the urea cycle but before i can talk about the urea cycle let me just give some preamble relating to amino acids now, the thing is amino acids, they have two lives, okay? So one life is as being a alpha keto acids. The second life is as being amino acids, okay? Now, the thing is to basically interconvert between alpha keto acid and amino acid, you either lose an amino group or gain an amino group. If you lose an amino group, you go from an amino acid to an alpha keto acid. If you gain an amino group, you go from an alpha, from an alpha keto acid to an amino acid, okay? So... To make those interconversions, you need enzymes known as aminotransferases, okay? Aminotransferases, you could also know them uh, as a transaminases, uh, just one and the same name for the same kind of uh, enzyme, okay? And these enzymes, they all use vitamin B6 as a cofactor, okay? Pyridoxal phosphate. Uh, hopefully, you remember your B vitamins, right? So, vitamin B1, right? Uh, that's thiamine, okay? Vitamin B2 is riboflavin. Uh, B3 is niacin. Uh, there's no B4. B5 is uh, biotin. Okay. Um, B6 is pyridoxal phosphate. Hang on. Vitamin B5. 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 Wait. B1 is thiamine. B2 is riboflavin. B3 is niacin. Vitamin B5. Wow. I'm actually ashamed I forgot this. I actually kind of like biochem uh vitamin b5 what is b5 panthothenic acid oops sorry so it's panthothenic acid b6 is pyridoxal phosphate b7 is um uh biotin okay b9 is folic acid b12 is cobalamin right so vitamin b12 okay so just a quick review there and we'll talk about what you use those different vitamins for in a later podcast so back to this so B6 is a cofactor for the aminotransferases, okay? It also so happens that B6 is a cofactor for uh, ALA synthase, okay, which is the rate-limiting enzyme of heme synthesis. And B6 is also a cofactor for um, glutamate decarboxylase, which helps us convert glutamate to GABA, okay? So hopefully with these other reactions I mentioned, you can see why a person taking isoniazid can get a sideroblastic anemia because they can, I remember INH depletes um, vitamin B6. So uh, by having a B6 deficiency, 
early synthase doesn't work so you can get a sideroblastic anemia because you're not making him alternatively if you have a b6 deficiency uh you have a buildup of glutamate and a down regulation of GABA synthesis okay remember glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter so you can get seizures with that so uh this um alpha keto acid amino acid pairing uh there's some that i will say are relatively high yield to know for step one uh that's uh, for example like pyruvate and alanine or alpha ketoglutarate and glutamate or oxaloacetate and aspartate okay uh, pyruvate for example is the alpha keto acid of uh, alanine so uh, to deal with our protein problem, we need to also deal with the ammonia that comes as a byproduct of proteins, right? So the thing is, uh, one way we can deal with this ammonia problem is to simply just pair it up with a hydrogen ion, okay? You make ammonium and then you pee out ammonium in the kidney, okay? This is the primary way the kidney deals with ammonia problems for us, but that's a very minor pathway. It doesn't do much, okay? Uh, to really, really get rid of ammonia, you want to condense it with a carbonyl group and another ammonia, okay, into something known as urea, okay? So you make urea, and then urea can travel in the blood nicely. It doesn't cause any problems, doesn't change the pH of the blood, doesn't need any kind of uh, carrier in the blood. Uh, so it moves safely in the blood, and then we just pee it out in the urea, okay? So urea is a great molecule. We actually have to make that urea and it so happens that that urea is made in is made in the in the liver okay that's why if you have liver problems you can get a hyperammonemia because your urea cycle doesn't work anymore okay so uh the urea cycle is a very complex cycle but to be honest there is not much you really need to know for step one there are just very few things that you sort of need to take away okay so the thing is um uh, Urea contains two amino groups, okay? And those two amino groups come from glutamate and aspartate, okay? Glutamate and aspartate. So the glutamate and aspartate take ammonia because remember, glutamate is an amino acid. Uh, aspartate is an amino acid as well. So it should stand to reason that these two amino acids were previously alpha keto acids at some point in the distant past. Okay, so those alpha keto acid forms of glutamate and aspartate receive ammonia, okay, and they are made into glutamate and aspartate, which then donate the amino groups to the urea cycle to help us make urea, okay. And the thing is, for those, uh, because I mean, think about it ammonia is not made only in the liver, ammonia is made in many different parts of the body. It's made in muscle, it's made in spleen, it's made in many, 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 many organs, okay. The thing is, the ammonia from those many, 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 many organs have to find a way to get to the liver to participate in the urea cycle. Okay, so the thing is, ammonia itself should probably not be traveling in blood, right? Because it's a basic molecule, it will raise the blood pH and you could like die. Okay, so the body uh, puts that ammonia with in an amino acid format, and then those amino acids they travel safely in the blood get to the key, uh, get to the liver and in the liver they dump those amino groups okay uh, into oxaloacetate to make aspartate and into um, alpha ketoglutarate to make glutamate and then you're good to go okay and those are um, uh, ammonia carriers in the blood okay there's glutamine and there's alanine 
okay and uh, alanine primarily comes from muscle and again that should also make sense the body uh, was actually created in a pretty pretty nice way okay because the thing is that alanine is the amino acid that comes from the alpha keto acid pyruvate okay and if skeletal muscle is running low on glucose okay one thing it can do is, is to say okay you know what pyruvate come here okay let's take the muscle breakdown um, ammonia pair it up with uh pyruvate you make alanine that alanine makes its way to the liver okay and then in the liver that alanine uh dumps the amino group with alpha ketoglutarate to make glutamate or with uh, oxaloacetate to make aspartate and then you reform pyruvate and then that pyruvate can be acted on by pyruvate carboxylase to make oxaloacetate that oxaloacetate can then be acted on by uh, pyru uh phosphoenol pyruvate uh, carboxykinase to make phosphoenol pyruvate and then you work your way up and remake glucose that can then be shipped right back to to skeletal muscle okay basically all i describe right now is the alanine cycle okay so that's why it makes sense that alanine comes from uh uh, uh comes from muscle okay because again if you think about it the alanine brings uh break down amino acid break down uh, ammonia from muscles but it also brings carbon which can be used as feedstock in gluconeogenesis so that the liver can replenish muscle glucose stores okay so uh the euro cycle again it's a cycle that helps us deal with ammonia okay so the thing is that ammonia is usually packaged like in glutamate for example okay and that glutamate is condensed with carbon dioxide and some other stuff okay by an enzyme known as cps1 which i already talked about before to make um carbamyl phosphate okay and then carbamyl phosphate is converted to citrulline with an enzyme known as ornithine transcarbamylase okay and the thing is it's literally those two enzymes you need to know from the urea cycle cps1 and anything transcarbamylase okay and remember that these two enzymes work just in the mitochondria okay um and the rate limiting enzyme of the urea cycle is actually cps1 okay and the regulation is actually pretty easy okay you have a you have a substance known as n-acetoglutamate it's uh it's an obligate activator of cps1 and when it activates cps1 you have more flux through the urea cycle okay and you may ask yourself uh, divine this is kind of like out of thin air how does n-acetoglutamate uh, make any sense right well if you think about it n-acetoglutamate glutamate is an amino acid okay you get amino acids from protein okay so it should make sense that if you're consuming a ton of protein right you're about to build up this nasty ammonia problem for your body okay so a high protein meal should logically right increase the production of n-acetoglutamate which logically should activate cps1 which logically should help you deal with that incoming ammonia load okay now um so the urea cycle it's a high yield pathway helps us make urea uh but in the urea cycle one thing i just want to throw in here is that as an offshoot you make arginine okay and arginine is kind of important okay uh you can use it to make histones I remember histones right uh they are, they have uh positively charged uh or basic amino acids in them like lysine or arginine okay uh, and remember that arginine is also used for nitric oxide synthesis okay remember nitric oxide is a vasodilator and uh if you're really thinking about this you may be like hmm arginine positively charged binds dna negatively charged 
basic amino acids again if you have a cola transporter deficit right so cystinuria okay uh, remember it's a defi deficit of a basic amino acid transporter right so cysteine Arginine, lysine, and arginine. Okay, lysine and arginine are not made. Okay, so you could potentially imagine that oh, this per, uh, your step one exam could word a question that says oh, this person may potentially have problems with uh, uh, like DNA expression, for example, because they have an arginine deficit, if you may. And if they have that arginine deficit because they're not reabsorbing it from the diet or from the urinary tract, okay, uh, you could imagine that they will have decreased histone synthesis. Although as far as I know, that uh, uh, having an arginine deficit does not really cause uh, many problems for humans. Okay, and if a person has hepatic encephalopathy, I just put that as an aside, uh, in general, you give lactulose for that, right? So remember, lactulose um, is converted to lactic acid that can acidify ammonia, okay, convert it to ammonium. Ammonium is not very reabsorbable, so you basically poop it out, okay? So that's where I'm going to stop today, and um, I will pick up from here in a different podcast. I just want to make sure you guys have a solid grounding for metabolism. So we'll just keep going with this and other topics. If you have any questions or you spot any errors, uh, feel free to post a comment or send me an email. Okay, uh, divineinterventionpodcasts at gmail.com. I wish you a wonderful day and God bless. Thank you.